Now, walk with Paul through the book of Acts, and we'll be in chapter 19, verses 21 to the end. And again, reminding us, what do we have here? What we have here is a history, a presentation. As Luke says in the beginning of Acts, of what Jesus began to do, it's the continuation of what he does through the Holy Spirit. Acts is the inauguration and continuance of the fulfillment of God's great purpose in creation. Finally, upon the earth, God has a people who are according to his image and likeness. Because these people, this church, are those who have been saved and incorporated into one man, the Lord Jesus, who is the only man who is completely the image of God and the likeness of God. So this is what we're seeing here. We're not just seeing another religious movement. We're seeing God bringing to fruition and moving forward to the end of that what God, which God began in Genesis 1 and will continue and culminate in Revelation 21 and 22. And so we'll be looking at the second half, if you would, maybe not half as much as just a division of numbers of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. We won't go in background into Ephesus and all that because you've already had that. So we'll be seeing what the Holy Spirit will be doing. But this morning as we prepare to look at Acts 19, what I'd like to do is ask us to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And often when we read the Word, what we must not fail to do is to read the particular passage that we're dealing with that God is giving to us, but not to read it in isolation from other passages or from the rest of the Bible. We have to read it within the context of an entire comprehensive work of God. And so you remember in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus has sat down on the side of the mountain and is delivering, if you would, the manifesto of the new kingdom, which we call what? The Sermon on the Mount. And so we come down to chapter 5, verse 13, and Jesus essentially tells us that we are two things as a church. We are salt and we are light. That's what we are as a church. Now, it doesn't mean that's what we're going to function as very well all the time. Some of us will do better in other times in our lives. But if you're a member of the body of Christ, you are salt and you are light. So we're not trying to become salt. We're not trying to become light. God has already declared that's who we are. And ours is to be walking in the good of being salt and bringing the light of the gospel to the world. That's our function. Now, 
Why are we salt and why are we light? Well, look at verse 16. Jesus said this, you're salt and light because you are to let your light so shine before men, so shine before the world. Let your light, which is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in us, to shine into the darkness of the culture. Why? So that they may see your, I forgot what the word says, what? Good what? Good deeds, good work. For what purpose? To glorify your Father who is in heaven. So when we look at this passage in Acts 19, let's do so this morning within this context. This is just one of many, many, many experiences of passages that show us what God intends the light and the salt of the gospel in us to look like in a dark and dying world. That's what this passage is about, among other things. So this morning, as we read, we're going to emphasize the effect of the power of the gospel not in a disassociated kind of ethereal way, but the effect of the gospel's power in us. That's what Luke, being led by the Holy Spirit, wants us to see. This is what God wants us to see. He wants us to see what he will do with a people who assault and light. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we, meant, we ask you, expecting you to do it because you said you would, that you will minister this morning through the faulty words of a man, through inconsistencies of testimony. But Father, as you take by the Spirit your word and apply it to our hearts, continuing to transform us, to continuing to conform us to the image of your Son, doing all the work that you desire to do, so that we may be your salt and your light to a world that you are calling your people out of into your marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 19, verses 21 and 22, and the word says this. Now, after these events, <clears throat> Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a little while longer. After these events, well, what events are we talking about? Well, last week, Jason unpacked some of these events. The week before, I think it was Keith who unpacked, or was it 
Evan who unpacked the week before. So we have had unpacked for us 20 verses of the events that have been happening in Ephesus as a result of the ministry of the gospel. So after these events, so after these events, after Paul has been ministering for a number of years, he's been planting and he's been cultivating the seed of the gospel. Everything seems to be okay. And we've had some rough spots and difficulties and whatevers, a few problems here and there. We had to kind of change locations of the church, and some people maybe got offended. But what, what I think we're all right. Remember that big book-burning thing we had about a week ago? You know, everybody was collecting all of that, which is of witchcraft and, and wizardry and everything contrary to the way God wants us to live. We just gathered all that stuff, and we threw it out there in the bonfire, and we had a great weenie roast. So, you know, it's, it's okay. Things seem to be going pretty well for the church. Pretty well. However, the salt and the light of the church was doing something in the community. And there was a price to pay for being salt and light. Now, may I emphasize that to you this morning? There will always be a price to pay for being salt and light. How many of us have experienced a price? Always a price. The effect of the gospel through the church, and remember, we do not want to be a church that disassociates the power and the effect of the gospel from the church. You remember what the gospel is. It's the good news that God has sent his son in the man Jesus Christ so he would take upon himself the full penalty and price of our sin, the sin of God's people. And in going to the cross, he would pay the full price of all our sin in his own body. So that when he died in John 19.30, he cries out what? It is finished. It's accomplished. It's a commercial term, telestai. It means it's paid in full. Church, that means this, that for those who are in Christ, every sin, may I repeat that word? For those who are in Christ, every sin, may I say it one more time? For those who are in Christ, how many? How many? Every sin is forgiven. Past, present, future. 1 John 1, 7, Colossians 2, 13. All our sin has been forgiven. And as a consequence of Jesus' death, God raises him from the dead, crowns him king of kings, and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to gather his people, having forgiven them. But we don't want, again, to disassociate the gospel from the church. The gospel was for the purpose of raising up a holy people in whom God would demonstrate his holiness, his grandeur, his glory. That's why God does what he's done. 
So what is the effect of the gospel? In Ephesus, and hopefully this is the way it is always, but we're not sure, and we absolutely know that's not the case. The effect of the gospel through the church was pressing against the business and the culture and the religion of Ephesus. Now, you see, Jesus, remember, described this. Remember in Matthew 13, 31, he says this. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that gathering of people that describes those who are saved by the gospel. It's one of those terms. The church, the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, basically synonymous terms. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed it in his field. Hmm. Little bitty old thing. Little bitty thing and you stick it in the ground and looks like nothing's happening nothing's happening but something is going on there is life that is happening there it is the smallest of all the seeds but when it has grown it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches So what's happening? Through the church, through the life of the church, through the church being salt and light, the branches of the kingdom of God are slowly but surely displacing the branches of the culture. And there's a result. You see, the gospel through the church is squeezing the very fabric of the Ephesian idolatrous culture. It's squeezing the economy. It's squeezing the religion. And the idols of the city were being displaced in the lives of those who were being saved. Something's going on. There's a real practical something that's happening in Ephesus. And as we move through this, the question for all of us to be asking ourselves as we move through this is, is my life such a walk and a work of revelation of salt and light that wherever I am and whatever it is I am doing and how I'm relating, how I associate with the world, what I do, what I don't do, where I go, where I don't go, Is my life having that kind of powerful effect upon the culture in which I live and at least my immediate culture of family and friends and work and neighborhood? Am I living salt and light to the way that God wants me to live so that the culture feels the effect of the gospel. I'm not talking about screaming in their ear, you're not saved. Oh, you know, I'm, not t- I'm talking about living the gospel in such a way that others feel it in you. They feel it in you. you know, I told you this, that several years ago when I was in the gym, I was in the dumbbell room. <laughs> How many of you know what that means? You know, the dumbbells. And I'm over in the corner. There's all this glass around us. You know, some of y'all know what workout rooms look like. So, And I was always the poster boy for the workout room. That if you don't work out, this is what you're going to look like. And, man, that drove people to work out, believe me. <laughs> and so I told you this before. I'm in there minding my business, doing my little workout. I'm sweating with this five-pound weight, trying to get it up. And Christian will tell you how that is. He'll tell you. He, he, he does that. And, 
And these guys over there are, you know, joking and laughing, ha, 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 you know, and all that, whatever. And I'm just minding my business. And so they all leave. One guy comes over. He says, you're a preacher, aren't you? I actually looked at my shirt to see what it said, and it didn't say anything. How many of you have heard church say something? And so I said, how did you know? I'm just doing my exercise. He said, because you didn't laugh at the jokes. What was the result in Ephesus of not laughing at the jokes? Verses 23 to 27. Everything erupted. And about that time across they and about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That was the name of the church at that time. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, she was the big goddess of the day. Brought no little business to the craftsmen. Business, business, money. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. This is how we make our living. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only of this trade of ours may come to a disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. My God, what are we going to do? This guy's distraught. What caused him to be such a panic? Fear of losing his business. I mean, did you notice that it doesn't say, and the church got together and made a lot of signs. And they marched up and down in front of the temple and said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall have no other gods before me. Did, did you notice that it, it, it didn't do that? Did you notice that they were not, and I'm not saying the church should not do that, but there is something more fundamentally powerful than us going into the streets in demonstrations. And I'm just wondering whether the reason we go into the streets to demonstrate is because we haven't been living the life that is the real demonstration of the power of God. I'm just wondering. I don't know. But I'm wondering if we were the salt and light in the power of the Holy Spirit, would we need those tactics? I just wonder about that. Maybe the Word of God can help us to discern this. Now, don't go out of here saying Peter Davidson's against all, against all people holding up. No. But there needs to be something underneath that that empowers that. You see, Demetrius was a silversmith. He made his business by making these little goddesses and, you know, little things and little artifacts and little statues and whatever. Now, don't, I know where you're going. You've, everybody thought of Catholicism all of a sudden. Ah, those Catholics. I think we probably, as a church, have more statues in our minds about the things in our life than there are in all the Catholic churches in this city. Amen? So let's not rail against those people. 
This is about idolatry in humanity, not statues in a building. You see, but he was losing his customers. Why? Because some of his customers were being saved and were no longer practicing the same practices, going to the same places, watching the same stuff, buying the same material. They were acting radically differently, not because someone told them you cannot and you must not, although those kinds of uh, commands and instruction are within the fabric of the church, but because their affection for those things had been severed with a greater affection for someone else. So we had two concerns. The influence and the practice of the church was first bad for business. And secondly, it was endangering the worship and security of the great goddess Artemis. Now that's a whole message in itself. But you see, what was really going on when there is eruption out there, meaning in the culture of the world, As a result of obedience in here, what's happening? What's going on? Well, what's going on is what, and Jason alluded to this last week, there's a spiritual warfare happening. Now, don't you be so ignorant. Paul talks about us being ignorant, unaware, uninformed. Let's not be so ignorant as to dismiss this very vital area of revelation. Because you see, the warfare on the earth is the manifestation and the outworking of the spiritual warfare in the heavenlies. All we have here, this is just the location of a much greater warfare that is happening all around us continually. And I'm sure some of you have been feeling it inside of yourself even this last week anybody been feeling a contest inside of you between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness anybody been feeling a contest sometimes this contest is one hell of a battle so what was really going on two kingdoms were clashing And the manifestation or the outworking of that clash was being seen in this eruption. Again, I want to emphasize this because I think this is what we need to do. The life of the church, my life, your life, my life as I live it personally, my own personal purity, my own personal obedience, my own personal spiritual cooperation and communion with God in the Word and with prayer and assembly. Our life in the church, not only my own personal life, but my life as a family member, as a member of the community, our life. The life of the church was branching, as I said, into the very life and fabric of the culture. And the problem was Satan 
was pushing back. Satan was pushing back. You see, the enemy was not Demetrius and Artemis and whoever else's. The enemy is Satan working through, but he's the enemy. You see, Satan's scheme, remember in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says we're not ignorant of Satan's scheme. It's talked about in reference specifically to, to uh, forgiveness or lack of forgiveness, but it, it is understood larger. We're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. There is a scheme going on. And so he is scheming, and his scheme is working. He used Demetrius' love and fear for his idol to foment a riot. It's working. I mean, how many of you have if you have more than one child or grandchild, have seen that one usually can start a fight with the other. It's easy. If you just ignore him, he'll be okay. He'll stop it. How many of you have ever said that? You know, it's easy to foment a riot if you know what buttons to push. It's easy to get people all excited, up or down or any other way. It's easy. So we've seen this in our families. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. He's coming into the room. Let's watch what happens. You know how he is or she is. Because we're so prone, you see, in the flesh to these issues. All of us still are. Aren't we as believers still? Am I the only one who's like this? Maybe somebody else with me. So Satan's scheme works. Let's read the next section, 28 to 34. And when they heard this, all these workmen, James, they're losing their business, brother. And look, let me tell you something, James. I'm losing mine today. You're not losing yours today. But tomorrow, what's happening in my business is coming to yours. So you better be with me on this. You may not feel it for a week, Gus, but they're coming. They're coming. This is coming. So you got to get with me on this. See, fear loves to collect people with it. So what's happening? And when they, these people, heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. See, you thought only Christians could worship. So the city was filled with the confusion. You see, confusion. And they rushed together into the theater. They came together too, Keith, into the theater, dragging with them. You see, Satan always counterfeits togetherness. And they came into this theater, this 24,000 seat theater. It's like going into the Superdome maybe. And with them Gaius and Aristocrus and the Macedonians who were with Paul's companions in travel. Verse 32 Now some cried out one thing, some another, and the assembly was confusion and most of them didn't even know what they had come together for. But hey, everybody's screaming and yelling and let's not, why not just enter the whole thing and so this is a fun time. We don't know why we're here. There's some people who do, they're upset, but who cares? Let's enjoy ourselves. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, but Alexander... Um, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense of the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, oh, my word, for two hours they continued. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. This place is going bananas. 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 Do you see anything in your own heart and mind of this kind of activity when the gospel begins to press against our, our idols 
When someone says something about idols that you disagree with, do you feel the defense and the excuse? Anybody? Yeah, but, but, but what? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Idols. You see, if it weren't idolatry, we wouldn't feel that way. Because God doesn't speak that way, does he? So you feel it, don't you? All it would take, give me 10 minutes, and we can have this place in a rush. If I would start speaking about some of the idols that are in all of our lives, not you, all of us. And there'd be people offended and leaving here, and people angry, and people disgusted, and whatever. Satan is at work. And church, when we begin to experience this kind of thing, especially when the gospel is pressing in on our activities and the way we think and where we go and what we want to do, and we feel this pushback in us, this stuff, you know how you feel, you know, and all of a sudden you begin, that's not God. God doesn't work that way. And the better part of valor is rather than for us to become defensive and giving excuses and reasons and explaining is to go to God and say, Father, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me this morning? There's riots, not only in the unsaved world, but in our own minds because of the pressing demands and power of the gospel. Am I the only one who feels this? Or do you? They're riots. This is Satan's work. But the good thing about it is this. You see, Satan is a doo-doo. I'm sorry. I mean, he's a doo-doo, Gina. He just is. I hope that word doesn't mean anything worse today than it did years ago. Because some words change in definition and like, oh, I haven't caught up, I haven't kept up with that definition. <laughs> You see, what he doesn't know, he knows it, but he's stupid. Because you see, Michael, every time you feel this way, it's an opportunity for you to hear from God and for God to speak to you. And Satan's using it as a, an attack against you, but God will use it if we allow him to use it to encourage and build us up and to cleanse us and keep us going. Correct? Satan's got, you know, I don't know, he needs to go to seminary, do a better job or whatever, so... When Demetrius' friends heard the news, they began to chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We chant. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because I don't, I like this, and I don't want to give it. And we chanting all the time. We, you didn't know I could dance, did you? You know, we chant. If we don't make it real, Vic, it won't get anything to us. We chant. Don't you ever chant? When the enemy, I mean, when the gospel wants to hit you, you chant. You start moving around. We chant. All of us chant. They're chanting for two hours. So that the streets were soon filled with a multitude of angry worshipers who began to attack the members of the church. Now, see, nothing like this would ever happen in New Orleans, Louisiana, right? Because once you get three people or two people actually on the street walking together, there's a potential parade. 
Isn't, have, have you lived in New Orleans long enough to discern this? Those of you who are not from here, be careful because of the two of you together. People may see you walking down the street and start saying, throw things, throw something, mister. That means you're a parade and they expect you to be throwing things. That's how this city is. Two or more people together. You see, the peaceable life of the church was over. Man, if only we could go back to the good old days. There ain't no good old days for the church as far as persecution is concerned. They began to experience Satan's persecution against righteousness. Remember Matthew 11, the last beatitude? Sorry, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, the last beatitude? What? Blessed are you when what? Men shall revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil falsely against you. Falsely. Because some of them are saying manner of evil against you, and it's true. So falsely. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Salt and light will produce an eruption in the culture against which God directs it. Now think, what would happen in this city today if the church of Jesus Christ, every person in Orleans, Jefferson, St. Bernard, St. Tammany, St. James, St. Charles, any other saints that are hanging around, what would happen if every believer in this metropolitan area started living and doing that which caused Bourbon Street and other things like this for that business to begin to dry up? You know, I, I hear the lament, the dirge of, oh, that our movies could be better, that we could clean up the industry. Well, first of all, God isn't, the gospel isn't here to clean the society. It's to clear it of its corruption. Not here to clean. It's to replace it. If you want to go to movies and you want to have movies that are clean, what does the church have to do? Stop going to all the other movies. Hmm? Ah. Don't complain and don't pray. What is the church doing anyway? That's not salt and light. It's salt that's lost its saltiness and it's light that's under a bushel. Come on. Anybody feel constriction right now? He's saying we never should go to a movie. Did I just say that? No. Maybe that was the Holy Spirit. If that's what you heard, that's the Holy Spirit. No, no, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Listen to the tape. Tommy, right? Listen to it. If you just heard that, that may be God saying something to you. And when he says that to you, he could be saying that to you. He could be saying other things that are radical to you. And the danger is, we may be accused of rebelling against God because, oh, that can't be God. It's too extreme to be God. Well, certainly it's God. If that's for you, go with it. If it isn't, don't. But do as the Holy Spirit leads. 
What, what would happen if Mardi Gras were become threatened because all the believers stayed home? Not only here, but everywhere. So you have 750 people on the street rather than a million. Do you think that this city would have any attitude about that? You see, it's time for the church not to be attacked and persecuted because of its foolish political involvement. I didn't say political involvement. I said foolish political involvement. It's time for the church to do what we're supposed to do and be attacked for righteousness rather than being attacked for weirdness in that way. See, what had the church been doing? I mean, Cliff, what has the church been doing to do this? What have we been doing to cause such a riot? What's been going on in Ephesus to have caused such a commotion? What's happening? The church was being salt and light. You see, the church was loving and obeying Jesus. Remember this word in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, doesn't that seem lovely? But what is the result of loving one another as Jesus loved us? What is the result of it? When we love one another, when we serve one another, when we care for one another, when we minister to one another, when we are together as a church, when we do all that God intends us to do as a church together, one anothering, they'll know we're Jesus' disciples. Isn't that right? Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? That's a great thing. But there's a problem with it. There's a problem with that. Because the moment the church, the world begins to experience the presence and reality of Christ himself in us. As we minister to one another and love one another and care for one another. And do the acts of God among one another. When the church sees that. I'm sorry, when the world sees that. It gets a revelation of Christ. And the problem is, they are going to become extremely antagonistic. Why? Because the world hates Jesus. You see, we don't have to go out and figure out how to get people angry with us. And we just have to care for one another and love one another the way we're commanded in this Bible of ours. There's so much there. That's all we're supposed to do. You see, the result of the church loving and obeying Jesus, Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians as he's commending the Thessalonians, and he says in verse 1, 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
And when the church began to turn from idols, not, oh, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> no, we have something greater than idols. We have a true and living God. Amen? Don't we have a true and a living God? We have a true and a living God. All idolatry will be cast into hell. We're going to heaven. I don't need my idolatry. And as we live in such a way as to allow and cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit to be putting my personal cherished idols from me and from us as a congregation, that work will inevitably and absolutely begin to make its way into the community, out the doors of the church out there. And it will cause us, because of the affection of Christ and because of our affection for him and for our desire to no longer be in bondage to that which destroys, we will turn from those idols. The question is, why is so often the church on the very front line with the world of all that's going on. Why? Jesus died to save us from this world's culture and influence and contamination and death, not to participate in it. Am I wrong in this? Or did, did everybody read that book called the Bible? And be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or demonstrate what is the will of God, both good and perfect will. Somebody said that to somebody. Be transformed. Be changed. You see, the church was doing what the church is called to do. Let's put a quote up there on there, somebody up there on that machine. Listen to what Derek Thomas says. And, and what is this? What's going on? Why is there a riot? What have we done? What have we done? There came a point when the Christians did not have to say anything at all. So you don't have to run and jump in somebody's face and condemn them to the ground for not loving Christ. <laughs> their absence from certain events... The point is, we need to ask God what events rather than assuming that it's okay for those events. Amen? We're not asking God every year I've taken my vacation here. Is that pleasing to you? <laughs> it's okay. In fact, it may be even that God doesn't want you to take a vacation this year and give the money to the missions. I don't know. But you see, Carolyn, it's God's prerogative, isn't it? Kathy, whatever your name is. <laughs> she understood. Their absence from certain events. Now think. <laughs> Don't you love the Holy Spirit? 
when I said certain events, now come on, let's be truthful. How many of you thought of particular things? Come on. Only I and the only one certain events that absence, only about four or five of you thought of certain events? Come on. I ain't dumb. I'm not brilliant, but I ain't dumb. Is that the Holy Spirit saying, up? Thank you. Up? Oop, oop, oop. That's God's work, not mine to tell you what to do or where to go, other than according to the Word of God. Their refusal to enter into the customary gossip that social engagements typically engendered, their love of truth and righteousness, these things cast a shadow on those who still loved a way of life that Christians had turned their backs on. Church, I'm afraid that the church, we're not turning our back on the world sufficiently. May I say it that way? I'm not afraid of offending anybody in here, but may I say it that way so you can receive it without having to debate me on the issue? If there's an offense, let it be from God the Father, not because Peter Davidson raised his voice to you. Don't you ever use my voice or my characteristics to refuse to hear from God. If you do, you're a foolish person. Because I'm going to follow you up a whole lot with the way I am. Unbelievers felt threatened and judged by it. Christianity changes more than just the hearts of men and women. It changes the culture in which they live. There's a riot. What was really behind Demetrius' fear? Satan's hatred of God's glory. Remember, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Jesus warns us. They hated you. Why? Because they first hated me. And this is why 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, don't love the world. Not even the things that are in the world. And he gives you an explanation of what that means. You see, the gospel is the gospel of peace. How many have heard that Jesus is the prince of peace, right? The prince of peace, 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 peace. The gospel is the gospel of peace only for those who surrender to it. But, to th- but it is the sword of God against all of those who refuse it. And we have to get this straight in our minds. Jesus said, 1034 Matthew, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. So the gospel of peace is only for those who are surrendering to it, to everybody else. This is a sword. You see, the church's love and obedience for the Lord caused them to be unwilling to associate with the culture the same way. I did not say they were not associating with the culture. They're not pulling back into a monastic life. In fact, because they're saved, now they see the culture as the most beautiful opportunity of harvest that they ever knew existed and now for the first time they with great joy and relish and great power and great enthusiasm run into the culture so that they can be salt and light into the culture to be used by and to witness the saving power of God's gospel in the lives of those whom he is gathering into his church. But we associate differently today. Differently. 
We associate the way the Holy Spirit leads us, not the way the culture says we should or the way we always have or the way we think it's going to be okay and the way we certainly, that wouldn't have been this and that, but the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Ask God how to associate with your culture. And don't assume he's going to tell you to do what you've always done, that you're free to do this and you're free to do that. Don't assume that. God may have different thoughts for your life. And it may be that this man's way of associating with the culture is different than this man's way. So don't condemn one another. As long as God is leading both, the result will be the same. As long, obviously, that is not disobedience to the clear word of God. So that doesn't mean go into barrooms, get stoned drunk so you can witness to someone. Someone said the other day to me, am I afraid of going into barrooms? I guess I am not afraid of going into a barroom. But I will go into any barroom on this world if it's the Holy Spirit's purpose to put me in there for the gospel. But I'm not afraid of anything in the barroom. But I certainly don't go into the barroom to participate in the thing of the culture thinking maybe God will use me. I'm not going to do it. I didn't tell you what you're going to do. I'm telling you what I'm doing. Oh, Peter said, never go in the barroom again. The Holy Spirit may have said that to you. <laughs> you see, I was raised in barrooms by drunks. And I'll return to one as fast as anything if the Holy Spirit says, go in that barroom and start ministering to people and talking to people and confronting the issues of sin. I'll go in there. I don't care who it is. But I certainly don't have the attitude, well, it's okay if I do this or go there. or go. Pray and ask God. Are you getting the message? Ask God. Be led by the Spirit of God. Hopefully I'm being clear today. They began to pull away from all those practices and places that once held them captive. Sophie, I don't have to do that anymore, kid. I'm free. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to have my martini anymore, girl. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. I don't have to go to that thing over there to get entertainment. I'm free. I'm free. There's something great in my life now. Christ. Christ. Now, what is God doing in a riot? Well, he's doing two things in this riot. You say, where's God in the riot? First of all, did you notice that I skipped 31 and 30 and 31? Did some of you notice that? What is God doing? He's doing two things, at least two things. First, he's protecting Paul from entering the theater. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, I could just see Paul. Come on. Um, don't you love the guy who is ready to go into wherever it is to minister the gospel? Don't you love that attitude? I'm ready to go, ready to go, ready to go. Like a Tasmanian, is it a devil? A Tasmanian saint. <laughs> Everybody said, he said, let me at him, let me at him, let me at him. Why, 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 why? Because he knew that the power of the word of God could shut the whole place down. No fear in this man. Boldness. Why? Why? Because he's a man who had been living purely. 
righteously, obediently, consistently before God. You see, the question is this. Church, where are the Pauls today? Where are the Daniels who refuse the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar? Where are the Davids who run against the giants of this world who are defaming the name of the God of Israel? Where are these men? Where are these women? You know where they are? Look around. This is where they are. We're those people. That's what we're to be doing. And then you will see the giants fall. Then you will see the mouths of lions being shut. Then you will see the kingdom of God progress in great glory. In the midst of riots and anger and everything else, the triumph of our God will be manifested. Where was he? Not only protecting Paul, but he was whispering to the clown, the clown clerk. <laughs> he was whispering to the town clerk. He was whispering wisdom. I'm not going to go into that passage. You can see. But essentially what it said there is the clerk said, hey, hey, we got to stop this stuff. We, we, Rome may come in here, take away our freedom. You know, Artemis, if she's a real goddess, remember Gamaliel in uh, Acts 5, was it? Or whatever it is. You know, hey, leave him alone. Do you really think our great goddess Artemis is upset by this? So, God gives him wisdom, wisdom to stop the riot. Where was God? He was there all the time. Where is God in our riots? Where is he? I know once in a while, you know, the riot gets so bad and loud. Have you ever thought, does God care? Is he hearing? Is he understanding? Where's God in the riot? So what was the result of God's wisdom being that the, the, the place is a riot? You can't even hear. It's probably like, what is the, uh, the Seahawks? You know, aren't they known for the decibel level? Can you imagine in that stadium where the decibel level is about what? I don't know what, 90 or 100 or somewhere around there? Huge. All of a sudden, in this huge den, the Holy Spirit is saying to the clerk, Aren't you glad God doesn't have to outshout the crowd? Aren't you glad God doesn't have to outshout the loudness of the enemy in your life? But all of a sudden we hear as Elijah did what? That what? Still, small voice of God saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. Listen to me. Here's what you need to do. Stop this. Go there. Believe this. Do that. Don't do that. So what happened? The riot stopped. The crowd dispersed. And Paul left for Macedonia. Verse 41. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The town clerk did. And verse 1 of chapter 20, which should, I think, be verse 42 of this chapter. <laughs> After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, and he left for Macedonia. Turn to chapter 4 of Mark. Mark chapter 4. 
There was another riot. There was another storm. Tammy, come down. Be ready. Mark 4, 20, uh, 35. And on that day, when the evening had come, Jesus said, now look at what he said. Let us go across to the other side. Church, Jesus says we're going to make it to the other side because he is the captain of the boat. He said, go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, and just as he was, and other boats with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. You see, Satan does not like the Son of God in our midst. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care? We're going under. We're drowning. We're going to die. My business. My fun. My associates. <sighs> and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea. And he said, Peace, be still. In other words, he said, Be muzzled. Like a wild dog, he muzzled Satan. Be muzzled. What happened? And immediately the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He says, where's your faith? And you see, the disciples were afraid in the storm. But when this man stood up in the middle of that boat, up and down and all around the storm and the lightning and everything going on, and he says, muzzled and be still, and every son goes, uh-oh. Who this? This morning, you may be being tossed about and all around. You may be hearing riots in your mind. You may be experiencing persecution. Not only from the outside, but much more interested this morning, I am the persecution on the inside of you. On the inside. You may be feeling the squeezing effects of the gospel as it is branching out into the various areas of your life, your thoughts, your feelings, your attitudes, your desires, the way you've been living, how you live today, all of that. The branches of the gospel are inexorably moving outward, extending it themselves into all areas of my life and of your life. And that cannot and will not happen without there being a struggle. And the enemy's going to be coming as a storm against you. Now, except for areas of blatant sin, and if the Holy Spirit convicts you of something, how to end that storm? You just have to confess your sin and ask the Holy Spirit's power for repentance. But some of you may be experiencing a storm of guilt. Jesus paid the price for your sin. You may be experiencing the storm of feeling unforgiven. Jesus has forgiven us of all our sin. You may be experiencing a storm of doubt of whether you're walking with the Lord. Jesus can encourage you and train you and teach you and get into the word and with prayer. 
You see, the fact of the matter is, we're going to be tossed about. There's no way of getting out of it. John 16, 33 says what? In this world you will have storms. But when we're tossed about, when we're tossed about, when we're tossed about, we won't be tossed out of God's boat. You're not going to get tossed out. Jesus has a hand on you. He has a grip on you. Tammy has a word that she felt the Lord gave her during the week. She'll share that right now. Not knowing anything of what we've talked about today. During a time of prayer this week, I just felt a sense to bring this word of encouragement to someone or some who are either weary in their soul or have received some grave news or a personal situation that has rocked your world. The Lord would have you know that he has not left nor forsaken you. He is ever present and he will comfort and strengthen you and be the lifter of your head. Lift up your eyes to see from where your help comes. It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He is good and great and he is Lord over all. And he is working out his eternal purposes. Don't get stuck staring at today. The Lord would have you receive fresh hope for future grace. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. No trouble, hardship, persecution, sickness, death, life, angels, demons, the present, the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Say to him, I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hands. There's a particular area that I feel the Lord wants to do or work. I just feel this is God. You have to respond according to how you feel. There are a number, whether it's one, two, three, I don't know, of people in this congregation that the storm of a deadly illness has entered your life. And it's a real storm. You're physically in trouble. But I believe the Lord wants to say, I'm with you in this. And I want you to, by faith, come down and allow the elders to anoint you with oil and to pray for you. So if that is you, I don't mean for a bobo. I'm talking about for any life-threatening issues. If you're here and you would like to do that, this could be God saying, this is your time. Don't miss the opportunity if this is your time. You come on down. You may not have told everybody, but it doesn't matter. You come on down. Phil, Bill, Keith, Steve, come on down, brothers. Let's pray. The rest of the church, would you pray that 
the prayer that Phil Widener is going to give over these ladies will be heard by heaven and will be answered by the power of the gospel. Lord Jesus, you are our rock. Yes. You are our strength. You are our shelter. You are our shield. You are Jehovah Rophe, our healer. And your word tells us, Lord, that by your stripes we are healed. Your word is true. It is inerrant. We stand upon it. We live because of it. We have faith in it. And now we stand together as a body of believers, Lord, and we pray for your healing hand to touch my sisters, Betty and Brenda. Lord, we come against this cancer in the name of Jesus. For you, Lord, have raised the dead. You have opened blinded eyes. Lord, you have healed my own wife of cancer. We know you are Jehovah Rophe. We call upon the power of your mighty spirit now to flood these women. Lord, may your very bomb of Gilead immerse them from the top of their heads to the, to the, under, to the tips of their toes and their heels of their feet, Lord. May you anoint them now with the mighty healing power that only comes from heaven. Strengthen them now, Lord. We pray for fresh hope and faith in these women's hearts. For their family as well as they surround them, Lord. For this family of believers as we surround them, Lord. May you convict us to put them on our prayer list this day and this week, Lord. And until we hear the the healing has come. Amen. And may we stand in faith. Knowing it is you and you alone. And this is for your glory. And for your honor and for your great namesake, that you would show compassion to your children. Yes, thank you, Lord. For this is who you are, Lord. Thank you, Father. And this is why we love you. Thank you, Lord. Why we honor you and why we bring you the glory now, Lord. Praise your name. Be honored in this, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let me dismiss you this morning with this word from the Apostle John at the end of the first letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.